the entire thing. <laughs> so we've been looking at questions like, what does the Bible say about gender? And what does the Bible say about baptism? And what does the Bible say about salvation? And we're gonna spend the next several months digging into some even more difficult and challenging questions. Uh, and I, I'm excited for how we're gonna grow as a church in the midst of this, but we wanted to take a pause today and say, how do I even know what the Bible says about anything? How do I, what do I do with this thing? Because, you know, we love it that you come here and you hear what Jeff has to say about something on a Sunday morning, and he's been doing an amazing job of unpacking the word of truth for us. But as the people of God, we want you to also be able to go to the Bible and say, what, is, what does it say? Not what does it say to me, but what does it really say about a certain subject? Not what I want it to say, but what does it really mean? And so to kick us off this morning, uh, I want to see, kind of, I want to gauge where your Bible knowledge is. And so we're going to play a game called Taylor Swift or Lamentations. <laughs> and you're going to have to figure out if this is a Taylor Swift lyric or the message version of the book of Lamentations. And so if it's a Taylor Swift lyric, you're going to go like this. And if it's, a if it's something from the book of Lamentations, you're going to go like this. This is an all-in game. Everybody has to play. If you're a little bit older, so I know earlier the people, the young people struggle with maps. If you're a little bit older and don't know who Taylor Swift is, maybe look to a young person for their answer <laughs> as we jump into this. Okay? So the first one. I remember it all. Oh, how well I remember the feeling of hitting the bottom. So Taylor Swift or Lamentations, okay? Everybody, I need more votes out there. Taylor Swift or Lamentations. All right, survey says Lamentations. That's the Bible, folks. Next one. Have you ever seen anything like this? Ever seen pain like my pain? Seen what he did to me? Taylor Swift or Lamentations? All right, it's Lamentations. Who knew the Bible was so emo, right? Like, come on, geez. Next. Long were the nights when my days once revolved around you. Taylor Swift or Lamentations? This one is Taylor Swift. Some of you are over three. Like, you, you obviously have never read the Bible before. Next. You'll find out what it's like to get drunk and wake up with nothing. Taylor Swift or Lamentations, come on. Lamentations, yeah. Somebody made some bad choices that night, all right? All right, last one for us, oh, oh, oh. Taylor Swift or Lamentations? That one's actually both, so some of you actually got one right. Congratulations, thanks for playing, folks. So, <clears throat> what does the Bible say? And how do I as a person who probably didn't go to seminary, who doesn't work in a church, how do I figure out what it really says? To understand what the Bible says, I think we have to start here. We have to talk about meaning versus application. Meaning versus application. So I wanna tell you something this morning that might come as a shock. For any given passage in the Bible, there is only one meaning. You don't just get to say, oh, this means this to me. Like, that's not how it works. There is one meaning 
to any given passage in scripture. And when you think about that, that actually makes a lot of sense because when Paul sat down to write a letter to the church in Ephesus, he didn't write something down and go, you know what, this actually means 10 things to me and I'm just gonna hope they figure it out, right? Like that's not how it worked. Paul sat down and he had a goal in mind and he wrote it down understanding what the meaning of that was. The problem is Paul did that 2,000 years ago. And he lived in a very different culture than ours. And he spoke a different language. And so sometimes it's hard to find the meaning, but the meaning is there. And so you and I, we may look at a text and we may disagree about what it means, but we come together as the body of Christ and we work through that. And we use what's called good hermeneutics, which is what we're gonna talk about today. You see, our Bible is a beautiful, complex book, and that's actually a good thing. An author that I really enjoy wrote this about the Bible in her book, Inspired. When God gave us the Bible, God did not give us an internally consistent book of answers. So if you open the Bible, it's not gonna look like a textbook or a dictionary. It's not just a bunch of lists of questions and answers, and that's actually a good thing. God gave us an inspired library of diverse writings rooted in a variety of contexts that have stood the test of time precisely because together they avoid simplistic solutions to complex problems. Is your life simple? Are your problems simple? They're not. And if the Bible pretended like they were, you wouldn't love it so much and it wouldn't have the ability to change our lives. It wouldn't be honest. It's almost as though God trusts us to approach them with wisdom, to use discernment as we read and interpret, and to remain open to other points of view. So, what does it mean? Then how do we apply it? There's one meaning, but the good news is there's a lot of different application points. There's a lot of different ways that scripture might hit you. And so you might figure out the meaning of something 10 years ago, and still today, the meaning is the same, but 10 years ago, that verse applied to your life differently than it does today. So we start with meaning, we'll get to application, okay? So let's jump into kind of the hard work of how do we figure out what this complex book means. There's three things we have to look at to figure out the meaning of any text. To understand the meaning of any biblical text, you need to take a look at the genre, the history, and the context. Genre history, context. We're going to kind of work through these in order. So let's, let's start with genre. Genre is types of literature, right? And there's a lot of different types of literature out there in the world. You know that. The Bible is no different. So let's look at this handy pie chart to figure out those are the genres in scripture. History, narrative, prophecy, apocalyptic, wisdom, epistle, poetry. History and narrative can be pretty straightforward sometimes. Epistles just is a fancy word for letters. Letters, sometimes, sometimes not, pretty straightforward. But prophecy, apocalypse, wisdom, poetry, that stuff can be complicated. And we know that from real life, right? When we read poetry, we don't take it literally, do we? We have to like kind of wrestle with it and sit with it a while and say, what does this really mean? When we hear a song, sometimes songs use hyperbole and word pictures, right? And we have to say, okay, that's beautiful, but what is the author trying to say? What is the artist trying to do here? Maybe evoke a mood or a feeling. 
Or when we read a biography, we just read it straightforward, right? We're like, okay, this is fact. Sometimes we read nonfiction and we read it one way and we read fiction another way. We do this all the time in life and so I don't understand why some people approach the Bible like it's flat. And no matter what genre they're looking at, they just pull out a fact and say, okay, this is a fact, when maybe it doesn't work that way. The book of Proverbs is a good example of what I'm talking about. So let's look at a proverb that's probably pretty familiar to you. Proverbs 22.6. Start children off on the way they should go, and even when they're old, they'll not turn from it. You've probably heard this one, right? Raise up a child and, you know, and, and they will not leave it. It's a verse that many of you have probably clung to as you've been a parent. You've said, this, this is a verse, this is, this is how I parent. I'm gonna raise up my children right and they're not gonna depart from it. The problem is, this verse is not a promise. This is a proverb. And proverbs are principles or best practices. And so if we think of this verse as a promise, something kind of icky happens. If you as a parent think of this verse as a promise and you say, okay, I'm gonna do the good work. I'm gonna read my Bible to my kids every night and pray with them. I'm gonna make sure they're at church two or three times a week. I'm gonna raise them up right and they're not gonna depart from it. And then your kid goes away to college and falls in with a bad crowd. Your kid quits going to church. Maybe your kid starts drinking, making other poor choices. And then your kid takes a class and decides, you know what, I don't even believe in God anymore. And as a parent, you're saying, God, what's going on here? You told me if I raise up my kid, they will not depart from it. And you start to get angry at God and disappointed that he's not following through with his promise. And 10 years go by, 20 years go by, your kid gets one divorce and two divorces, starts to have a substance abuse problem. And God, you said they wouldn't depart from it. And you keep waiting for God to answer his part of the promise. And it hurts your faith and it hurts your relationship with God. You've been using scripture incorrectly. You didn't pay attention to the genre. That's not a promise, it's a principle. And it's a really good principle. Because you know what? God is the creator of everything. And so he knows how stuff works. And so the book of Proverbs is full of really good principles and best practices. In fact, this one is true in this way. They did some research on this. If a father and a mother faithfully attend Sunday morning church and are part of a life group on a regular basis, there is a 72% chance that their children will also attend Sunday morning church and be a part of a life group. 72% is huge, parents. All you have to do is model well for your children church attendance and Bible study, and there's a 72% chance that they also will fall in love with Jesus. That's huge, but it's not a promise. And sometimes things happen. And sometimes we experience heartbreak as parents and God's heart is broken too, but he didn't lie to you and he's walking alongside with you and he cares about your child deeply too. So we have to pay attention to genre. We also have to pay attention to history. And before we show this verse, I just wanna say if you shop at Hobby Lobby, I apologize because you probably have this verse written on like a distressed piece of wood and some like calligraphy 
up on your wall. There's even a chance maybe that you have like a really cute tattoo about it and you wrote in your journal like, this is my life first. Okay, we're gonna read it. Here we go, pull the Band-Aid off. Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. That's a great verse. And it's not about you. Not everything in scripture is about us. I know sometimes we wanna open scripture and say, okay, God, what do you have for me today? But parts of the Bible, what they mean isn't about us. The application is always there, but the verse may not mean what you think. And I think this one, we've been using it wrong because we haven't been paying attention to the history. So let me explain the history behind Jeremiah 29, 11. There was the nation of Israel and the nation of Israel squabbled and they split into two nations. You've got Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And Israel in the north, the 10 tribes of Israel in the north, they were never faithful to God. They never honored God. And God tried and tried again. He sent his prophets, he warned them, but they wouldn't listen, they wouldn't repent. And so the nation of Assyria came down and conquered the northern 10 tribes and took them off into exile. And they disappeared. While they were in exile, they didn't stay true to God. They intermarried and they were never seen again. The people in Judah, the two tribes left, were scared to death of this. They saw what happened to the northern 10 tribes and they said, we're God's people. God has made promises to us. Let's not let this happen to us. And so sometimes they honored God, but sometimes they didn't. And they had a long run there at the end where they weren't honoring God. And God sent prophets and he warned them, just like he warned Israel. And then the nation of Babylon came and destroyed Judah, conquered Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and they were carted off into exile. And while, you know, you know the story, like you know, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's, that's the story. While they were in exile in Babylon, they're scared that the same thing is gonna happen to them that happened to the northern 10 tribes. And this false prophet arises and he says, guys, everything's gonna be okay. God's got you. I bet in two years time, we'll be home sitting pretty. So don't worry about it. He just was saying things to make people feel good. And Jeremiah comes along and he says, that guy's a false prophet and he doesn't know what he's talking about. God does have plans for you. God does have a hope and a future for you. God does see you in the midst of your suffering in exile. But God's not gonna fix things right away. God needs to see that you're gonna remain faithful. God needs to see that you're gonna continue to worship him and honor him in the midst of a, of a people that does not honor God. God's gonna need to see that you stay true to his word. And if you do, in 70 years, God will bring you home. 70 years they had to wait in pain and suffering surrounded by their enemies but they did it, they remained faithful, and God remained faithful too. So if you wanna apply that verse to you, know that whatever you're in right now, you need to wait 70 years to see it be fixed. So take it as your life verse, sure, go ahead. We'll talk about application in a little bit, but do you see how the history of that verse changes a little bit about what's going on. To know that this was Jeremiah speaking to the people of Israel and not to individuals changes what's going on with that verse. 
And if we take verses out of context and we don't consider genre and history, the problem is sometimes we might make God say stuff that he didn't really say. And God says a lot of really amazing things. God promises a lot of really good things to us. We need to hold to those promises and those truths, and we don't need to be making up other ones because we like the way the verse looks on our wall. This next one, I put it in here because I just wanna say ministers mess up on this too. I've used this this next verse incorrectly. I can almost guarantee that I've stood on a stage like this and used this verse out of context. And context is so important. So let's look at this one. Matthew 18, 20. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. You've heard that before, right? God is in this place this morning because at least three people are here and not at the lake. I know small town pastors use this a lot like at the Wednesday night prayer meeting when like four people show up. They're like, it's okay, the Lord is with us. Two or three are gathered in his name, the faithful few. But that's not what that verse means. That's taking that verse out of context. And that's problematic because we get verses like Matthew 6, 6. Matthew 6, 6, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, when you wanna meet with God, when you wanna pray, don't do it out in public, but instead go in secret and meet with your God. And if I put that up against this other Matthew passage and I'm taking it out of context, I'm like, wait a second, when I pray in secret, there's not at least two or three people there, so is Jesus even showing up? What's the point? And we can bring confusion into things because we've taken one verse out of context. And this happens, I think, a lot for the church because we're not taking the time to really pick this up and dig in it. Lifeway did a study this year, and it says this. Although 65% of Protestant churchgoers, that's us, we're Protestant churchgoers, spend time alone with God daily, only 39% read the Bible during that time. So 61% of us are not spending time in the Bible. And so we've got all these verses flowing, floating around in our heads, or maybe we're seeing them places and we're meditating on them or this or that, but we're missing something because we're not engaging with God's word in context. And that's crazy, right? Because if a loved one sent me a letter I'd wanna read it, right? If I got a letter from somebody that I hadn't heard from in a long time, a long lost friend, I'd be eager to read it. And I wouldn't just flip to page four of that letter and take one sentence out of context and say, this is what my friend sent me, it's what the letter's about. I'd read it from beginning to end. And the God of the universe has revealed himself to us because he loves us and wants to be in relationship with us and he's done it through this book. And yet so many of us, we never pick up our Bibles, but maybe when we are doing a quiet time, we're picking up something like this, a devotional. Y'all probably have devotionals. This one in particular is very popular. It's called My Utmost for His Highest. It's kind of old now, but it's by a guy named Oswald Chambers. Sold 13 million copies. That's a lot of books. 13 million copies of this floating around. And there's a lot of people that just sit down and this is their quiet time. Instead of opening this because they're scared of this, 
they're opening this. And it has, a, it has a little quiet time devotional for every single day of the year. And as I flipped through this book, I noticed something. And I don't know if you, you probably can't see it out there, but I'll tell you, at the top of every page, there's one verse, and then there's a bunch of paragraphs about what Oswald Chambers thinks about that verse. And so for some Christians, they're just reading this, and they're reading one verse out of context, not understanding the genre it's coming from, not looking at the history, and then they're letting this guy tell them what it means, and then somehow hoping that the Holy Spirit also gave him really good application for their life. That's lazy, and it's dangerous. Oswald Chambers is great, and I'm sure a lot of what he wrote is true, but it's dangerous for us as the people of God to take that as truth and not this as truth. Meaning is important. And I know it can sound kind of daunting. You're like, Nathan, I didn't go to seminary. Nathan, I don't get paid to just sit around and read about the Bible all week. I get it. But it doesn't mean that God doesn't want you to do the good work. It doesn't mean that God doesn't want you to grow. We believe in something in the Baptist church called the priesthood of all believers. You have direct access to God. You don't need to go through me or Jeff or anyone else. You have the Holy Spirit inside of you that helps you discern and dissect the word of truth. So I wanna tell you about a few tools that you could use if you wanna dig in and figure out genre, history, context. This first one here is a Greek and Hebrew study Bible, keyword study Bible. It's a great resource. Um, so I was in seminary and I took my very first Greek class and I made a B. And then I took my second Greek class and I made a C. And I was like, I can see where this is going. I have six more classes and I'm never gonna be able to be a pastor if I keep doing this. So I changed my degree so I didn't have to study biblical languages. So I don't know Greek or Hebrew, so don't come to me and ask. But you could come to the Greek and the keyword study Bible. So I use this tool when I see a word that seems complicated or ambiguous or something like that, I open up the keyword study Bible and it has those words underlined. And then I can go to the back of the book and it shows me the word in Greek and it shows me all the places that word's used and what that word means in context. It's a great tool if you wanna to begin to dissect God's word in a new and unique way. The next one I wanna talk about is a study Bible. All of you probably own a study Bible. If you don't, it's very easy to get your hands on one. Study Bibles are great. At the beginning of every book in this study Bible, every book of the Bible, it has a two or three page synopsis of that book. It'll tell me what the key verse is, who wrote the book, what the genre is, what the purpose of the book is. It'll give me a summary of the book. And so in two or three pages of reading, before I begin digging into the word of God, I can quickly figure out the genre and the history. And so you might say, Nathan, this is too hard. You can read two or three pages. And once you've done it once, you may never have to do it again if you have a decent memory. One time I need to say, okay, what's the book of Acts about and who wrote it, right? We can do that. This next thing is called a commentary. Commentaries are awesome because really smart people who didn't flunk Greek and Hebrew actually look at the Greek and Hebrew and then write about what they think the Bible says. Commentaries are great, but you don't start with commentaries. You start here and you say, God, what does the Bible say? And then when I think I know what the meaning is, I go to other wise people and I use their counsel, whether it's people in the local church here, other staff members, or something like a commentary and say, what I'm seeing, does it match up with what other people are seeing? So it's a great check to make sure you're not getting too far out there. And this last one's just a cool little tool. It's a Bible dictionary and concordance. 
Some of the churchy words in the Bible, we don't use them the same way anymore that they used to be used. And so I'll look up the churchy word and say, okay, what's a Bible definition for that word? And where else is that word used in scripture? Because maybe I don't understand it here in context, but I might understand it over here. There are tools available to you. And if you don't own any of these tools, I have a huge library and you're welcome to come and borrow them, just not all at once because I don't have 4,000 books. I have like 400, so. But you don't really even need these. What you need is this. And 61% of us are saying it's too hard, but we're not even opening the book. Take the book of Acts, for example. If I'm in Acts chapter 15 and I'm reading something and I'm like, wait a second, what is Acts actually about? What's the genre and history of Acts? I can flip, flip to Acts chapter one and Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, literally tells you what the book is about right there at the beginning. So you read two paragraphs in Acts chapter one and all of a sudden you know the genre and history and then you can go to Acts chapter 15 and look at the context. And it takes a little extra time and a little extra work, but it's possible, it's doable. And when we do the good work of figuring out what is the meaning, that one meaning, we can begin to turn then, okay God, what's the application? An application is the work of the Spirit inside of you. You see, somebody could study this book all day long, and it could be dry and dusty and dead to them if they're not followers of Jesus Christ and if they don't have the Holy Spirit inside of them. It's the Holy Spirit that illuminates Scripture. It's the Holy Spirit that brings Scripture alive. It's the Holy Spirit that makes this living and breathing and different than any other book we can put our hands on. And we're gonna study a lot in the fall. I'm super excited about the work of the Spirit. Uh, unified curriculum for our life groups. We're gonna do six weeks on the Spirit. So I'm not gonna unpack all the things that the Spirit does this morning, but I do want us to look at this one verse. If your brother or... Oh, sorry. This is a different verse because I got ahead of my slides. This is Matthew 18 in context. We should look at that real quick. Sorry. <laughs> So Matthew 18 in context, because we're talking about context with that verse. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loose on heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for it, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. So, put a pin in what I was just talking about a second ago, and let me tell you about this verse in context real quick. Sorry about that. So two or three gathered, sometimes we talk about it like it's a worship service or it's a prayer meeting or something like that. Uh, and we're missing a really beautiful truth that scripture shows us when we look at it in context. So in context, what that passage is obviously talking about is church discipline. You see, it was really important to Jesus that we as a church be united and that we do the hard work of reconciliation. And so this passage says, if you go to somebody 
and they're not listening to you. You're trying to reconcile them. You go to them in love and genuine concern, and they're not listening. Bring someone else along with you. And then if they don't even listen to that person, bring a few more people with you. And Jesus says at the end of this passage, if you're doing this really hard and beautiful thing, know that I am there with you and I am cheering you on. That I am your biggest fan and that if you're looking to keep the body of Christ unified under me, I'm there. And so yes, it's hard, but I'm there. And so when we look at that verse in context, all of a sudden it has a really beautiful meaning that we miss if we take it out of context. So there's that piece. Now, back to the Holy Spirit. So we wanna talk about what the Holy Spirit does for us whenever we engage with scripture. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. So, we talk about meaning. We do the hard work of actually figuring out what the Bible means and then the Spirit begins to help us unpack spiritual things and to help us understand spiritual things. Because people without the Spirit, they look at this and it's foolishness to them. But to us, it's the very Word of God. And so the Spirit does two things for us. The Spirit helps us to accept and apply the Word of God in our lives. The Spirit helps us to accept and apply the word of God in our lives. You see, sometimes I read stuff in scripture and I don't like it because it means I have to change or I have to do something different. And so it's the work of the spirit convicting me and annoying me and pestering me sometimes to say, Nathan, I need you to accept that this is what this means and then let's talk about how we can apply it to your life because you've got some changes to make, buddy. But that's a work of the spirit. So we do the hard work of actually just like picking up our Bible and reading it. And then the Spirit does the work of seeing us transformed more into the image and likeness of Christ. And that's what each and every one of us should deeply, deeply desire. So real quick, let's look at our three passages again and say, okay, we talked about what it means. Now, how might the Spirit apply? Now, this is some application that, that came to me but the application for you might be different. There's one meaning, but there's lots of applications. So with our first passage, Proverbs 22, six, I need to be attending church myself. I need to be reading the Bible myself. I need to be loving Christ and loving others well. I need to be modeling that for my children each and every day. And that's the best thing that I can do for them as a parent. And sometimes I don't do that super well on a day-to-day -day basis. Or sometimes I do it in private, and you know what, I might need to sit in my living room and read my Bible out there so that my kids can see that this is important to mom and dad. So that's an application of that one for me. The next one, the Jeremiah 29, 11, it's not about me, it's about the nation of Israel, but one of the truths that I see in the meaning of that passage is that God has plans for his people and he won't let his people fail. And we, the church, are his people. And he has plans for us, and we will not fail as a people. 
And I know that one day Jesus will return and I look forward to that hope even if it feels like it's long in coming. 70 years probably felt like a really long time to the people in Babylon. And yes, it's been a long time since Jesus walked this earth, but I still know that a day is a thousand years to God and a thousand years is a day and God is not slow in coming because he wants that none should perish. And so even though sometimes I wish Jesus came yesterday, I eagerly look forward to it and hope and know that he will return and I don't give up. And then the last one, the Matthew passage. There are some people in my life that I walked away from and I didn't do the hard work of unity and I didn't do the hard work of reconciliation. And when I read that passage, I feel like Jesus is saying, maybe there's some people that you ran away from or discarded that I actually wanted you to do the hard work with and I maybe want you to re-engage with that person but know that I'm there with you and I'm cheering you on. What does this book really say? And what do we do with it? We're gonna continue on in this series and we're gonna look at a lot of different topics. And some of the things that Jeff says you may wholeheartedly agree with and some you may disagree with, but whether you agree with him or not, I want you to take what you heard today and go home after you hear the sermon, sit down with this book and say, okay, what does it mean and how does God want me to apply it? Will you pray with me? God, I thank you so much um, for your word that you revealed yourself to us. You didn't have to do that, God. I pray that you will stir, God, our hearts, that you'll convict us, God, to just, to just spend time with you in real and meaningful ways, God. Uh, to not do the lazy things, God, but do, do the good work of relationship. Pray this in Jesus' precious name, amen.